Twilio is a communications infrastructure company with thousands of internal services and thousands of requests per second. Each request generates logs, metrics, and distributed traces, which can be used to troubleshoot failures and improve the latency. Since Twilio is used for two-factor authentication and text message relaying, Twilio is critical infrastructure for most of the applications that use it. The service must remain highly available even in times of peak application traffic or outages at a particular cloud provider. When he was at Twilio, James Burns worked on platform infrastructure and observability. James was at Twilio from 2014 to 2017, a time in which the company experienced rapid scalability. His work encompassed site reliability, monitoring, cost management, and incident response. He also led chaos engineering exercises called Game Days, in which the company deliberately caused infrastructure to fail in order to ensure the reliability of failover systems and to discover problematic dependencies. James joins the show to talk about his time at Twilio and his perspectives on how to instrument and observe complex applications. Full disclosure, James now works at Lightstep, which is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. When I talk to web developers about building and deploying websites, I keep hearing excitement about Netlify. Netlify is a modern way to build and manage fast, modern websites that run without the need for addressable web servers. Netlify is serverless. Netlify lets you deploy sites directly from Git to a worldwide application delivery network for the fastest possible performance. Netlify's built-in continuous deployment automatically builds and deploys your site or your application whenever you push to your Git repository. You can even attach deploy previews to your pull requests and turn each branch into its own staging site. Use modern front-end tools and site generators like React and Gatsby or Vue and Nuxt. For the back-end, Netlify can automatically deploy AWS Lambda functions right alongside the rest of your code. Simply set up a folder and drop in your functions. Everything else is automatic. And there's so much more. There's automatic forms, identity management, and tools to manage and transform large images and media. Go to netlify.com slash sedaily to learn more about Netlify and support Software Engineering Daily. It's a great way to deploy your newest application or an old application. So go to netlify.com slash sedaily and see what the Netlify team is building. Also, you can check out our episode that we did with the Netlify CEO and founder, Matt Billman. That was a really enjoyable episode. And I'm happy to have Netlify as a supporter of Software Engineering Daily. James Burns, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. You were an engineer at Twilio for three years when the company was going through significant scaling. Tell me about your time scaling Twilio. It was an interesting process. When I first joined, there were only three people that were on call for all of Twilio. So that was, at that point, still about 500 services. And so uh, the the on-call process particularly was, was grueling. 
And what would happen would, would be you'd be paged for a system that you may have seen before or not, probably once or twice a day, and then uh, being on call um, once every four or five weeks. And so I, I learned a lot through that process about how all the systems work and how, in general, a, a large-scale cloud provider worked. But I, I learned it the hard way, I think. How did Twilio get to a point where there were three engineers doing the on-call duties for 500 services? Well, so it, it had grown out of uh, originally there being three base teams. And so each one of those teams had to, had to offer up tribute for every week to, to operate that team's set of services, but also to cooperatively operate all the different services. And so that, that was where they'd grown out, where they'd grown to, to that point. And about a year after that, through a lot of work on the platform team and through a lot of tooling and through also a lot of people work, we were able to move to a team-based on-call. And with that team-based on-call, teams would operate their own services, which still required some work to get that balanced out because the team I was on in particular had, we, we counted 45 different services, most of them that were core critical that we were then on-call with about six people for. It was mostly an outgrowth of a lot of early choices to build things like immutable infrastructure, but then just having gone through that growth process, building things that people could easily roll, roll back, having visibility, and then having like a really, really strong on-call culture where like if you were paged, you were there within 15 minutes, period. And that was the expectation. That was what was done. And so you could get people on who, if you didn't know the answer, you could find somebody who would show up who would know the answer and, and get things done when they need to get done. Twilio's growth was around the same time, if I if I have the timeline right in my head, about the same time that Uber was really taking off. And I done some coverage of Uber and them scaling their massive numbers of services and, and trying to maintain high availability for very sensitive transactions, and it's it's really hard. This was a, a kind of a period of growing pains for basically the cloud providers and all of the companies that were building or trying to build very reliable services on the cloud providers. I do feel like things have gotten better. Like if you wanted to build Twilio or Uber today, it would be so much easier. To what extent do you think that's true? I think that's mostly true. I think a lot of it has happened because... Um, many of the frameworks that, that people used have become open source. So at that point, there was the only real example out there was Amazon itself. And so people were trying to follow their patterns and then the patterns that Netflix had pioneered on top of Amazon. And a lot of people are not Netflix or Amazon. They're not at that scale, even if they aspire to be at that scale. And so some of those patterns ended up being relatively heavy for what people needed to do. And they were having to do it themselves. They were having to try and understand not only what the company was doing, what, but what the underlying principles were, what the trade-offs were. And now I think it's a lot clearer. Like, there's been a whole bunch more published, like the Google SRE book, for example. And, and then there's instantiations of this as open source, like Kubernetes, like all the different distributed tracing products like Jaeger and Zipkin that give you not only the tools to do it better, but also the, the context, the understanding of the trade-offs for building these large-scale systems better. So the infrastructure at Twilio, it obviously changed while you were there. So you saw some of these trends 
modifying the industry from a firsthand perspective. How did the infrastructure at Twilio change while you were there? I think that one of the biggest changes was to actually invest in platform explicitly. There's there's a process and a thought, a general approach that that the idea is that people everybody can be an expert at everything like the the really hardcore devops kind of approach where people are going to you know be able to manage their services all the way from the kernel all the way up and that that ends up being pretty tough to scale so one one of the changes was to invest a lot more heavily in a platform and then that have that platform team build out the tools necessary to do things like scaling canaries, different kinds of CI, CD architectures, and let the application developers be more focused on building applications. They were still responsible for operating them, but they were operating them in the context of a set of tools that we were building specifically for their use cases. And I think that made a big difference. There were also some changes that were made to the build process and to the the way that we deployed software, and some of those were still in flight when I left. And and I think that that's what really even increased the velocity more than where it was. The platform engineering role is an emergent role. Obviously, it was adopted many years ago by by certain companies, but it really has become more of a pattern. And a, a platform engineering team will do things, as you said, like they'll figure out, here's the continuous delivery model that we're roughly going to follow throughout the company. Here's the logging patterns we're going to follow roughly throughout the company the distributed tracing patterns, the perhaps service mesh patterns. What do you think should be the responsibilities of a platform engineering team? I mean, I, th- I think that that's a, a decent list. It's, it's minimizing, well, it's also in addition to those. So metrics, logging, distributed tracing, service discovery, and software deployment, including common software deployment patterns like auto-scaling, canary deploys, Canary analysis probably would also fall under that. But I think I think it's also that they aggressively reduce the cost to follow those patterns. Because one of the, one of the things, one of, one of the hard lessons I learned on the platform team is that migrations are expensive. They are amazingly expensive. And the more you can optimize for migrations being cheap, the more likely they're going to take less than months of time or years of time. There were a couple of migrations that didn't end up taking years of my time there. And and I tried to learn from that experience. What's an example of a migration? So one migrations was from one major operating system version to another. Another migration was from EC2 Classic to VPC. Let's take that second one. Why was that hard? Well, so at first there was no networking between Classic and VPC. I mean, so people had come up with all kinds of different things. There are a bunch of articles out where they were like creating IPsec VPNs. VPC, by the way, vir- virtual private cloud EC2 is just the raw EC2 instances. Right. And, and EC2 had a single address space for all instances everywhere, well, within that region. And so you needed to, in order to migrate traffic live and not just have a big bang cutover, which nobody would be willing to accept the risk of that, you need to create a way for your services on both sides of that divide to communicate. And just as a preface, why would you want to migrate from EC2 to VPC? EC2 Classic was being decommissioned. All the new features were in VPC. The security model for VPC was a lot better. There were certain mistakes that you could make in configuring EC2 Classic 
that would let random other people in the region connect to your instance, which is not something you, you generally want to do. The networking, the reliability, the sorts of things you could do in VPC were, were significantly better than what was in EC2 Classic. Okay, sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to give preface to people who, who are a little unfamiliar with these terms, but please tell me more about the migration. So originally there was there was this this idea that, oh, we're going to just follow the other patterns that were out there, which was to create uh, encrypted networks between all your machines everywhere. I'd have to look up which uh, which article it was, but one of the one of the major uh, cloud companies had had done this or, or applications on the cloud. We, we weren't quite ready to do that. So eventually this thing called Classic Link came along that allowed you to connect classic instances to VPC instances. But even with that, there was a big question about, well, so how do we do this? And so originally there was this large plan of, here's how we're going to do it. You know, the, the Gantt chart, the water, waterfall migration for moving over. And it's like, well, this service is gonna move first and this service is gonna move next and then this service. And it was built on top of like our understanding of the dependency diagram, which of course was was pretty dynamic, as most things are in, in a large uh, service-oriented architecture microservices. And what I ended up having al- already gone through the OS migration, and there was another one in between there, I, I raised the flag, I'm like, this is a big, big thing that we're asking people to do, and we're asking them to do it on a very specific schedule. And the risk that any any kind of problem is going to delay everyone was pretty high. So at that point, I started advocating pretty strongly to to figure out how we could absolutely, in every way, minimize the amount of effort it took people to do this migration. And so we ended, what we ended up doing was we ended up changing the way we did service discovery so that you could control whether your traffic was going just to classic instances, just to VPC or both. And then we made it so that using that tool and making the default be to go to both, that people could launch their services in VPC and launch their services in EC2 and have it just work from the perspective of of their consumers and from the perspective of people that they were consuming as downstream services. And so that process made it so that people could move when they were ready. And so it wasn't something that had to be on sprint schedules for the next six months. It was, hey, you've got a couple hours. Go try and launch some stuff in VPC. Hey, does it all work? Well, then you're migrated. Good. We're done. And that that made a big difference. There you're showing a lot of subtle empathy for the developers throughout the organization. Do you have any other tips for like developing uh, this seems really pretty important for a platform engineering team because they're you know the platform engineering team is trying to create sane defaults for everybody across the organization but if you don't have a good sense of what is going on across the organization you can't craft those sane defaults in a truly like i guess democratic fashion that is one of the 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 key hard parts is you are asking them to give up some some set of control that they they might already have, they might want to have. And so you need to really understand what their use cases are, and especially use cases that that you in in some cases might not want them to do. I mean, you need to understand what what they're doing, why they're doing it, and and what you can do to help them out. And that will make a big difference in in how they look at the platform team, either as an ally or or a a blocker to to them doing their real work in the application. The word 
observability started getting used in the public engineering lexicon, I guess around the time when you were at Twilio. So we've had these things like monitoring and logging for a pretty long time. Why is there this newer term, observability? Does that represent anything significant other than new marketing materials? I think there's been an evolution. Originally, a lot, a lot of the checks are, are checklist-based tests from outside, like the Nagios approach. And I think there's been a realization that applications are their own spaces of complexity, which is a sort of weird way of saying it. But like the inside of an application has a whole bunch of different sorts of state, different ways that it is doing whatever that application does. And in order to effectively manage that application when it's in production, when it's not just sitting on your laptop and you can connect a debugger to it, though I don't think very many people do that anymore either, it needs to be observable. It needs to expose some of that state in a way that developers can understand it and other systems can understand it so that they can interact with it effectively. So describe some of the different types of data that you would want your observability tools to capture. Well, I mean, your your application should be exposing, at the very least, the, the units of work that it's doing, ideally in some kind of business-relevant sense, like messages handled or messages forwarded or messages created, these kinds of basic metrics that let you know that it's actually still doing the work that you asked it to do. And then there's other things like distributed tracing where it puts that work in context of other work in the system. And so that allows you to put together more of this entire story or, or narrative about, in the end, the customer experience. And then you have things like logs, which give you some kind of forensics use. But one of the things I've found is that if you're looking for logs, if you're looking at logs in real time, then you've probably missed something else in your observability checklist that would give you something that's usually more structured to understand what your application's doing. In many cases, the platform engineering team is going to be the ones responsible for defining the observability tools, defining the observability workflows, understanding what the quote-unquote line engineers are going to be facing uh, in their on-call experiences, their debugging experiences, as well as their performance improvement experiences. So what's the what's the workflow that you want to present to the different engineers? If you're a platform engineer, you're, you're sort, of, sort of selecting these different tools or these different vendors, and you want to be able to empathize with the average developer, like, how can you, I guess, reduce the work to to the simplest integration process or the simplest onboarding process? And I guess more generally, how should you select the tools that are going to be in the observability toolkit? I think there's there's two main things to look at. There's cost of integration, which you want to drive down to zero or as close to zero as possible. I think that that like one line is like acceptable. And there's this exponential curve beyond one line of integration that reduces the, the chance that someone's actually going to use your stuff. And then there's accuracy. If you ask people to use tools that don't provide accurate understandings or, or summaries or whatever else on top of the data, then people are going to lose trust in those tools and they, they won't use them. And so 
I would look for how can we solve this particular problem? Well, so that goes back to an approach that, that I like to use, which is asking what, what questions do you need to be able to answer and how do you answer those, those questions in a particular tool? And so you end up finding when you want to ask a question, there's going to be tools that are, are better and worse for doing that, but you have to understand the kinds of questions that people want to ask and then you look for tools that can answer those questions. And then you look at how to make those tools most easily available to the most people by driving down the integration costs. On Software Engineering Daily, we've had several shows about the future of technology education. We believe that boot camps are an efficient, cost-effective way to become trained for the tech industry, whether you want to be a programmer, a data scientist, or a designer. Flatiron School can teach you the skills you need to build a career that you will love. Flatiron School has immersive programming courses on JavaScript and Ruby, everything you need to become a full-stack developer. And if you're interested in becoming a data scientist... Flatiron School has courses on Python, SQL, and machine learning. You can learn in person or online, and you can find everything you need to get started by going to flatironschool.com slash sedaily. Flatiron School has options to save money on the program, such as gender diversity scholarships and income share agreements. Flatiron School also helps the students who graduate find a job. Every graduate is paired with a dedicated career coach, so that they can find a job or their money back. The complete details are at flatironschool.com terms. Flatiron School is a cost-effective way to start working in the tech industry. Learn more at flatironschool.com sedaily. One thing about that integration cost... So when I was an engineer at Amazon, my, my my brief time at Amazon, one thing I remember is when I when I was getting my service up and running, the thing that I was I was working on, I magically got all this stuff out of the box. Like I magically, oh, like hey, the thing is logging, and whoa, it's I've got monitoring and this these things, and I didn't. It was total magic to me when I was when I was working there because I was just working on some Java backend service, and it wasn't like in, infrastructure, so I didn't really know how the infra like the infrastructure within Amazon worked. It was only later that when I started doing some shows about like the service mesh or the service proxy area that I realized like at a at a highly performant organization you often have this kind of thing that just gets like bundled into your application automatically thanks to the platform engineering team that is doing all this stuff for you. So uh, when you're the platform engineer and you're architecting this engineering experience for the other engineers that are building like the services that actually make up the business logic of the company, what are your selection of kind of deployment models or integration models? Like I see this, the service mesh sidecar approach is one. Perhaps you can also do like the way that Finagle started out where you have this, you know, like a Java library that you're importing and it automatically gives you all these things. What are the different modalities of deploying these observability tools to your service engineers? 
That's a great question. And I think I think the way that's evolved is is really interesting. So I'm most familiar with this from from the perspective of watching uh, how Netflix has gone through this evolution in what they've sh- shared externally. But originally there there was if you've got a single single language, especially, you just have a library and you package that library everywhere. And it goes out and all your stuff works the right way because everyone uses the same library. But one of the interesting things that happens with that kind of what ends up being pretty tight coupling is that there's some services that just don't get touched that often, most because they just do their job. And so when when it comes up and they're like, you know, two weeks behind the current library or four weeks or six months or two years, it starts becoming harder and harder to get change out because you have this this tight coupling between the application and all the platform tools that you're building for that application. And so that that really limits the platform's ability to to evolve. And so what people started looking at were things that were less tightly coupled, but like provided plugins for these kind of things. And so people looked at gRPC and gRPC is, is interesting in that it, it provides this full suite integrated in application, but not quite as tightly coupled. But at the same time, it, it's still the same sort of problem where if you have major version changes or you want to make some, some change and all of that isn't driven on something in, in runtime, which it can be, but is relatively hard, then you still end up with, with something that's fairly tightly coupled across a whole bunch of a whole bunch of systems. And so you end up with service mesh, which is a way to try and push all of the, a lot of the platform resilience logic outside of the application and have the application just be responsible for business logic. And so have the, the service mesh handle retries, circuit breaking, all these, all these different sorts of patterns to try and make it more resilient by default. And then with that, you can, especially with the sidecar model, you can, you can, relaunch those independent of the application even, but evolve that much more quickly as opposed to something that's either compiled into the application or, or directly adjacent to it. And that, that seems to have been the real success of Service Mesh is to provide that additional agility in being able to push out platform improvements or improvements in resilience in general. And that application model makes a lot of sense to me. Are there any downsides of that application model like we did it we did a show with a company called netify that i think uh, came out of netflix and they they there's this open source project called rsocket now they described well the, the guy i interviewed he described some some issues that they encountered with the service mesh approach that led to a degradation in performance and perhaps this was this was very net netflix specific but may, maybe you know i'm just wondering cuz cuz Twilio is you know bears some similarities to to Netflix have you seen any deficiencies in the the service mesh container sidecar model yeah definitely one of one of my usual stories on on distributed tracing is this and and so what 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 I saw in in working through putting distributed tracing into the applications at Twilio was that the edge gateway uh, for the API was made all kinds of requests to authentication because that's that's part of the core functionality. Every request needs to be authenticated, and they were saying, "Look at this out this authentication service. It's just so slow. Look, it has a P99 of like three seconds, and it's just not reliable." 
And, and so I, I knew some people on the authentication service team, and so I talked to them, and they're like, we're looking at our service, and we respond within 500 milliseconds no matter what. Like the, yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so there became this question, well, well, what's really going on? And so I ended up putting together a really hacky way of uh, synthesizing spans from HAProxy, which is what we we're using for our service mesh. And what I ended up seeing was that they were both right. The application on localhost was experiencing delays up to three seconds getting to the local service mesh sidecar. And once it got to a sidecar, it would be dispatched, and, and that more or less matched up with what the application was seeing. But it's certainly possible for there to be issues on localhost, and that having to do with uh, scheduling of threads or networking or whatever else. But that becomes invisible unless you have your service mesh instrumented in a way that you can compare those timeframes, usually with distributed tracing. Now, if I'm at an average company, probably those downsides of, of service mesh, maybe there's like latency issues, basically, like for, from, from what I heard, like it's kind of a performance issue. You, you, you can develop some performance issues because of this sidecar model. But I think for most companies, probably that that performance issue doesn't really matter, and like the the sidecar model is going to be a pretty good fit. Would you agree with that? I think it it gets really tricky without distributed tracing, to be honest, because I think that you can't you end up not being able to see where your connection actually went, so it becomes hard to correlate failures with endpoints because you're you're connecting to localhost, and so. If that fails, like if the request fails, you have to say, well, why did it fail? And then like you're going through your service mesh logs, maybe. What you really need is that kind of connection to where it ended up. And, and the easiest way to do that is with distributed tracing. It's really hard to do an aggregate with, with logs or metrics either. I mean, metrics are interesting to see like failure rate or something like that. But to say, hey, this particular request, where did it go? Why did it go there and and why did it fail allows you to to do things about failing instances. Another one of my my common rants is that nobody's health checks actually do health checks. I, I, that's been true most most places I've been because like the the service mesh model requires some way of being aware of how healthy the downstreams are. I mean they're they're load balancers or first proxies, whatever you want to call them. If they don't have an accurate view of health, then they will send uh, requests to failing applications. And you'll wonder, why is it all failing? And it's like, oh, look, they're sending requests to an application that we know is unhealthy, but the health check didn't actually reflect the health. So I think that that's one of the things where where you, you still, even if you're not really concerned with performance, you still need a way to, to connect the dots between all the different things the request is going through. Okay. We should take a step back here because now we're talking about tracing and you work at Lightstep now. So of all the places you could have gone to after leaving Twilio, after working at Twilio for three years, why was the problem of distributed tracing interesting enough or important enough to change companies to Lightstep? Well, there was actually a company in between, Stitch Fix. And so what I, I did the distributed tracing or started that, that migration at Twilio and then was looking for, for what to do next. And so moved to Stitch Fix, which was different different area, different concentration, different position, but pretty quickly got involved in, in their, their migration to, to have a standard observability approach and, and saw that actually be significantly 
faster, mostly because it did end up through a fair amount of work being a single line integration. But I, I saw what a difference it could make to have pervasive distributed tracing and and to I, in both cases, both at Twilio and, and at Stitch Fix, I spent a lot of time working with application engineers, helping them understand the different perspectives that were being presented. And because it's usually not just one thing, it's like, well, the application sees it this way, the service mesh sees it this way, the downstream application sees it this way, and getting people to think in that kind of perspectives mindset within the context of, of a trace and also within metrics as well. But having gone through that process twice, I got pretty motivated to try and make that experience better for people in general. I feel like a lot of application developers, especially, or people who would call themselves application developers, they experience a lot of pain. And, and they, it usually is that they don't understand that they need these tools until like they, they're experiencing so much pain that's intolerable. And I thought there was a, an opportunity by talking with people more widely, by making this my job, to help them understand earlier what the situation is, that, that even, if, even if you're building a monolith, it's probably a distributed system because you're probably, you're probably deploying it into a cloud provider, or when, at, at the very least, once you integrate a SaaS provider into your monolith, then it's also definitely a distributed system. But like to get people to that, that truth earlier, and then to show them that that doesn't have to mean that they have no idea what's going on, that there are these tools out there that help them understand what's actually happening, that give them this perspective, that give them accurate information about what their code's actually doing. Because one of the, one of the other patterns I've seen is that there's this belief that because the code should be doing something, it is doing something. And it's, it's an interesting process to see that, that belief be challenged and people to realize that, no, really, even though I think the code's doing this, I need to instrument it in such a way that I can understand what it's actually doing. And so I was excited about the opportunity to do that work with, with LightStep and, and to, to spread this kind of message that you don't have to be in pain, that there, that there are tools that can make it so that you can understand what your service is doing and that you can then build it for resilience. And that was part of the whole story with, with also the, the chaos engineering, that by choosing to in, embrace failure on your terms, on your timeline, you can gain that kind of hands-on understanding about what your service looks like when it's not doing well, what your code actually does when things aren't working right. And that, that I've seen it transform the way that people do development. I've seen it give people that, that kind of basic confidence to be able to operate their service at scale in production and, and just not have to experience pain. There may be a little, bit, a little bit of pressure when something's going wrong, but they know they have the confidence that they have the tools to figure it out. We did a show with, with Ben, who, Ben Sigelman, who is the, the founder of LightStep, and he originally created distributed tracing at Google, or at least to some extent. He wrote a white paper, I believe, about it. And and what kind of blew me away about that conversation was just the, the depth of engineering problems that are inherent in distributed tracing. So like on the actual user side, you have to, first of all, decide at what rate am I sampling? 
you know how frequently am I sampling my all of my application requests to to see if they're if they're actually you know to see if there's some kind of problem or to actually get a reasonable view like how frequently do I need to sample it in order to get a true honest view for how this 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 thing is performing and then on the actual distributed tracing library side of things you have how do I write a performant distributed tracing system that does not interfere with the actual services that I'm running? Because if I'm sampling every single, uh, basically every single hop, every single network hop, you know, that could, if if that was implemented poorly, that's really going to degrade performance. And then you have all of these traces that are created and you have to decide how am I going to store these things? When am I going to do garbage collection? When am I going to do compaction? How available do I want to make them for people to to retrieve and see? And so there's really like a cornucopia of different engineering problems inherent in the distributed tracing space. Yeah, definitely. And, and that that is one of the things particularly about LightStep that has me excited, not just about where we are right now, but but where we will be. Because I think that, that the satellite architecture that LightStep uses, where we collect everything, or almost everything, everything that you can afford to send over the wire locally, which is going to be pretty much everything, perhaps terabytes, perhaps petabytes a day, in a structured fashion, and then put that in the satellites, which have a certain amount of recall, and be able to ask questions with essentially foreknowledge, because you can take the information that comes in later and use that to re-understand the past so you can have a better than 2020 hindsight but at the data level at the algorithm level that allows you to make the right choices to surface the right data as quickly as possible and then to put that in front of engineers as a complete context so that was one of the things that was really really interesting at twilio using lightstep is we drove a lot of chat ops around this where it would notify Slack when there was an issue and it would give you your, your exemplar traces and you could click on one and you could look at it and you'd be like, oh, look, it's broken in this particular way. And that's evolved even further now uh, here in, in the, with the correlations tool that I think is uh, just, just released officially recently where it will, it will do that kind of analysis in, in near real time where you can say, hey, look, these two tags are correlated in this particular way which will think, tell you things like all the requests going to this AZ are failing. Maybe you should take all the stuff that is in that availability zone out of load balancer and then it won't be failing anymore. That's like just scraping the surface of what's possible with, with this kind of observability platform where you, where you have the ability to collect all this data because memory is cheap right now and getting cheaper. And so you can have a lot of data for a a relatively short amount of time, but enough time for you to use the future to influence what you look at. Can you describe this in more detail? Why is the, I mean, I think think of it kind of as a garbage collection policy engineering problem. Why is the, the retention policy and storage policy of distributed traces, why is that a deep engineering problem? Well, it's, <laughs> I, 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 I probably don't know the, 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 very, the very bottom basics of it, but one of the, the purely straightforward and easy economic issues is that you cannot afford to send all this data outside of your cloud in its raw form. And it's, it's even a problem with logging if you're doing that. The amount of data that's created, uh, terabytes, petabytes, 
that egressing that data out to some kind of processing in, in the SaaS or whatever else, and even if that SaaS is directly connected uh, via VPC peering or whatever else, it's just cost prohibitive. So you need to be able to keep that data local. So the network, it's the networking cost. That's what's, that's the limiting reagent? It is for a whole bunch of things, yes. That it would be too expensive to move that data somewhere else on the internet to process it. And it's relatively expensive to collect all that data at that high resolution locally. But to persist it would be also, from a storage cost perspective, pretty prohibitive. So having this sort of in-memory pool that can be terabytes a large fairly easily, the, the cost of, of memory large instances has, has really dropped significantly. And then from that full view of the world, be able to, to construct what is meaningful or interesting and then just save that. So I, th- I think we shoot for at least a 1% reduction, but I think it ends up in some cases, especially with heavy use being significantly more than that. You don't want to afford to store petabytes an hour of data that you might not be interested in because you don't need perfect recall forever. It would, it would just be a bad set of trade-offs. So you want perfect recall for some short amount of time, and then you want to choose what you want to recall after that time. But the other part of it is that you want to be able to use the information you get later to help you understand which of those things you actually care about. So being able to play all the way within that recall window to be able to understand how change creates meaning. Like if if there's a significant performance change, that changes the meaning of previous data because it, it ends up being more interesting. Deploying to the cloud should be simple. You shouldn't feel locked in, and your cloud provider should offer you customer support 24-7. Because you might be up in the middle of the night trying to figure out why your application is having errors. And your cloud provider's support team should be there to help you. Linode is a simple, efficient cloud provider with excellent customer support. Linode has been offering hosting for 16 years, and the roots of the company are in its name. Linode gives you Linux nodes at an affordable price with security, high availability, and customer service. At linode.com slash sedaily, you can get started with 2 gigabytes of RAM and 50 gigabytes of SSD for only $10. There are also plans for cheaper and for more money. Linode makes it easy to deploy and scale your application with high uptime and simplicity. Features like backups and node balancers give you additional tooling when you need it. Go to linode.com slash sedaily to support Software Engineering Daily and get your application deployed to Linode. That's l-i-n-o-d dot com slash sedaily. Thank you, Linode, for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. What I think is kind of a long-term problem, but probably an inevitable problem, is the fact that eventually we're going to have these like machine learning systems that behave kind of in a way that looks non-deterministic. Like we're going to have these, you know, it's going to we're going to have a system of machine learning models, and it's not going to be easy to tell from the code like through what order different machine learning models will be hopped 
through. And the only way to have perhaps the the source of truth, I mean, it would either be some kind of logging or some kind of distributed tracing. But I think this machine learning auditability problem is eventually going to become pretty difficult to solve. And then if you, you know, then then it becomes really important what your retention policy is on those, you know, when you're rolling those, the perfect recollection and memory trace data into something that you're going to store longer term, you're going to have to choose carefully. Yeah, I mean, you're, I think that like, each individual part of a machine learning model is reproducible in that like it's running a finite set of steps that result in a certain score. But as those change over time, and you sort of need that kind of record of it, it was this thing at this time with these settings as part of your record of that transaction so that at worst case, you can go back and reproduce it and say, okay, I'm going to load all these models up at these versions with these settings and figure out why it made the wrong decision. I think that that's definitely a thing. And that's part of why like annotating this information, these paths with tags that give you that ability to, to contextualize that particular transaction is pretty important. Because if you don't include that information, then then it really does become a total mystery how anything happened. Um, there's there's definitely trade-offs between logs and traces, and and you can actually put logs on traces. So it's it, there there are some ways through that, but it's tricky too because retaining logs indefinitely without some idea of their importance, especially in a in a post GDPR world, is pretty fraught as well. Could you go a little bit deeper on that logging versus tracing area? Because I I feel like if I even if the platform engineer has handed me this perfect platform to work within, if I'm going back to my Amazon days when I was just basically a neophyte engineer working on a service and I kind of understand how Java works but don't really understand anything else about anything in engineering, and then I've got this like buffet of different logging and observability tools, chances are I'm going to use them in a suboptimal series of steps. So. Is there a set of like best practices for how I can like choose between logging and monitoring and distributed tracing for solving a given problem? Or I mean, is it intuitive for the kind of person that has all of these things available to them? I don't think it, it tends to be intuitive because I think that there's always the joke about printf debugging, well, at least from the C days. Whatever print is in your in your current language now, I think a lot of people still treat logs that way as the, the record of the execution of their their application, but usually that's not structured most of the time. And so it's, it's just a log of human language describing what they thought they might want to know. And, and often it isn't what they actually want to know. So I found that logs are usually good for forensics. If there is some level of detail that you want to track about state across time, at the service level and not necessarily the request or transaction level and that you need you'll know that you need to look at it for forensics for auditing for whatever else within like seven or so days then yeah that's fine as a log metrics are are for understanding aggregates and aggregates by some some different sorts of dimensions which is where different kinds of tags come in for that but you're looking usually at counts, almost always you're interested in counts or rates derived on counts to understand how uh, flow is working or how levels are relative to other levels in the past. 
Whereas distributed tracing is this sort of like long set of things that represent often a, a customer view or a consumer view of, of what happened so that when there's a bad experience at the overall level, you can see which components caused that to happen. That's basically impossible to do with logs or metrics because they're not structured for that kind of, not necessarily long-term, but long-term relatively narrative about, about what the experience is. And so like, if you're going to use logs, it helps a lot for them to be structured so that you're not trying to read a million logs. But logs for real-time interaction is pretty tough. I think it's useful to think about all of these, though, as events. And they're just events with different structure. The components of a distributed trace are spans. And so those are events that have a particular structure that describe start and end times, tags, what the particular thing was. You could certainly log those, but it's the construction of those into a trace that makes those interesting. And similarly, counters or settings on gauges for metrics are also events. And those events become interesting when you aggregate them together into counts and graphs and time series. If I take you back to your Twilio days, you know, Twilio is a thing that has to be super highly available, super resilient to tail events. Because SMS delivery can be this life and death, life or death matter. So you have to be able to identify and handle outlier events. Like you need to be able to somehow have your observability tooling or your platform engineering tooling able to capture, okay, when did an SMS take an extra eight minutes to be delivered to somebody for some reason? Do you have any tips on like instrumentation to be able to capture those outlier events or all are those easy to capture i mean if you're instrumenting with a tool that has accuracy with i don't actually know what the technical term is but hdr histograms is something that it's been called at different times there are a few different iterations that have happened but you need you need to be captured. Sorry, what is HDR? Yes, I believe there's a the open source, a few open source implementations of that, and there there are various different approaches that people have taken. But what you need well, what what does HDR stand for? Sorry. I think it's high definition something. <laughs> it, it's okay. referring to, to to high definition histograms, ones where you can get oh like flame graphs. It's well, yeah bucketing, so that you can do bucketing that actually gives you like five nines latency so that you're out you know actually how far out your outliers are because it's it's relatively easy to get into a situation where there are operations that are done <laughs> on the data that's gathered which destroys data so if you like go oh well, i've got all these different histograms these different distributions of of latency i'm going to average those together well, all the data is just gone at that point because it's not that kind of data. It's not that kind of data structure. You need to be able to capture the distribution of times it takes to do something into a data structure that allows you to preserve a very wide wide set of things from milliseconds to seconds to minutes even. And that that's something that goes to the that I was alluding to in, in terms of accuracy of tools. It's pretty important to have tools that are actually giving you accurate information about what your what your tail latency is, what your tail error rate is. I've seen situations fairly regularly when we were using this actually for a log aggregation tool at Twilio, 
where we would see canary deploys in our cloud providers and we we would see the the five nines latency go up and we'd be like, uh-oh, <laughs> once this rolls out for real, there's going to be a problem. And four hours later, it rolls out everywhere. And it's like, yep, it just got you know 10 times slower or started falling over or whatever else. But being able to see that kind of tail latency for, your, for the SaaS that you're consuming, the cloud services you're consuming, is also very, very interesting. You know, another way to capture these outlier vulnerabilities or to at least raise your probability of catching them, is these game days or chaos engineering. And I know you're a fan of these things because basically, if I understand game days correctly, it's kind of you you take a day where, okay, we're not going to focus on like building the new business logic and the new services and stuff. Basically, we're going to spend a day beating up the infrastructure and causing random failures and see what comes up, like see what kind of unexpected vulnerabilities emerge from the system. Uh, tell me about your, I guess, preference for game days and why game days are important or why chaos engineering is important to you. Sure. I, I think a lot of it is that it's, it's the same sort of assumptions that, that what your code should be doing is what it actually is doing have to do with what happens when, when your provider's or your downstreams or whoever else you're related to have issues. So in our experience at Twilio doing it, we found that we'd put together the system. It was we thought it was really great. We were like, yes, we're ready to ship it. Let's do a game day. And and usually a game day actually isn't anywhere near a day. Probably most people <laughs> it, it it's pretty stressful. Like you you don't usually want to do it for more than a couple hours at once. Because it, it is like the worst times of on-call, especially when you're originally starting with a system that doesn't have resilience and doesn't have observability. But what it allows you to do by purposefully failing the things that you depend on to make your application work, you can see, because you know that you created the failure, you can see whether you can observe the failure you knew you created, including its, its impact on business metrics. An astounding amount of the time, you cannot actually see these things because it wasn't instrumented that way. It wasn't made observable that way. It was made observable for the happy path. And once you're off the happy path, it's, it's, it's weeds and ruts and all kinds of a mess. And so the, the chaos game day process, by purposefully failing these things, you, you get to see what you can't see, but you know actually exists. You know that there's impact you know that your stuff is not working correctly, and you know that you can't see it. And that tends to be very motivating for everyone, including application engineers, because they they know, like it's not some theoretical that's going to happen in the future. It's failing right now, they can't see it. It probably will fail like this at some point in the future. Let's, let's fix it, let's make it observable. And then once you get past that initial, like, we can't see anything, then you can start working on resilience. And resilience, making the choice, making the, the choice of what trade-off you want to make up front. Do you want to slow the system down? Do you want to stop it? Do you want to raise alerts? Do you want to take some kind of fallback action? You can make all those kinds of decisions and then test those. Test your resilience strategy. And one of the things I've also found with this is that an untested resilience strategy is, is like an untested backup. It basically doesn't exist. So unless you're regularly testing these resilience situations, either through, through manual game days or through automated chaos engineering, 
your resilience story will stop working. And then when there is a failure, you go, oh, well, we developed resilience to this. And it's like, well, we haven't tested in six months. So we made some code changes that actually broke our whole resilience strategy. So game days and eventually, I think it's, it tends to be higher stakes to, to do continual chaos engineering, but game days are, are relatively low cost, a couple hours, even once a month, though eventually we got to doing it once a week to develop confidence, but in your ability to address these issues, develop confidence in your observability, develop confidence to address things on call. But I, I think the even more interesting thing than that is that they change the way that application developers look at developing applications. They change the mindset so that when you develop an application, when you add a feature, the question immediately comes to mind, how am I going to observe this? Because I know it's going to go into chaos game day. What resilience strategy, what trade-off am I going to use here? because I know what's going to happen. I know that failure is real, and I know that I need to make a choice in how I design my application, how I develop my code, to make that application observable, to make it resilient. This is another one of these areas, the whole game day chaos engineering space, that you know, it's almost like the, the machine learning model example where there's so much depth to this problem. Like you think about okay, what does a game day look like if I decide my continuous delivery service is like offline today? For whatever reason, you know, we've deferred continuous delivery to some provider and let's just imagine that they had an outage or like you're, you know, okay, let's imagine my logging service provider has an outage. You know, can we solve these problems without logging? That's like, that's probably a game day level that you don't really want to do at most companies, at least today. Well, it's funny because I've seen that happen several times in the last couple of years. Both, oh, you've both seen of the, those continu- examples, the continuous yes. delivery. Oh my God. Yeah, and so, and so you're, left, uh, you're left with a with situation where you, you need continuous delivery to fix continuous delivery. And that, it's worth having a strategy for that. I personally think that those were- Cir- circular, <laughs> circular dependency CI. Well, but like people will do that because people like live in the happy path, right? And so- and so you go, well, how do I build this? And it's like, well, in the like for instances, I one would build this the instance in the same region that's having the outage to fix the outage. And and you go, well, that's not going to work. So what do we do? Like it's it's funny, like looking back at the different incidents and outages that I went through at Twilio, I think the worst ones were actually the ones which were like this, which it wasn't hard down. There wasn't a pervasive problem, but we could not replace capacity because of some other outage. So like, if one thing goes wrong, <laughs> we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So what are we going to do? Because the tooling is, is built around this and it, it when that goes on for hours, it, it definitely makes an impression. So I, I think that, that that's not actually unrealistic to think about. I mean, I think it's certainly hard to do practically, but for that particular example, it's something that it's worth giving some thought to. Because if you have, uh, and there have been some multi-hour outages with, with different cloud CI, CD solutions, you should have a plan to do something <laughs> in that kind of situation. To close this off, it's been a really great conversation. Are there any gaps that you see in observability tooling that still exist today? I mean, I, I think the biggest one is still cost of integration. 
I'd really like to see us have the expectation that all of our frameworks have basic integration for observability, distributed tracing metrics, logs even. This should just be table stakes for any majorly or commonly used framework. And right now the case is, yeah, you can create some add-ons or you can buy a thing from this person or that person, and they're all going to do things a little bit differently. I'd really like to see us move towards observable by default applications. And I think that starts at the framework level. It's a little bit hard to solve at the language level because that's that's a bit too general, but most frameworks have a, a particular use case that you can meaningfully create a set of, of default instrumentation, default observability around that you can plug all kinds of different providers into to help you surface insight. But I think that expecting people to instrument observability themselves every time differently everywhere is a losing battle from the migration standpoint. People won't do things that aren't core value and that are expensive. So I'd really like to see us move the ball for that kind of default observability. James Burns, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks. It's been great to be here. GoCD is a continuous delivery tool created by ThoughtWorks. It's open source, it's free to use, and GoCD has all the features that you need for continuous delivery. You can model your deployment pipelines without installing any plugins. You can use the value stream map to visualize your end-to-end workflow. And if you use Kubernetes, GoCD is a natural fit to add continuous delivery to your cloud-native project. With GoCD on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow, you let GoCD provision and scale your infrastructure on the fly, and GoCD agents use Kubernetes to scale as needed. Check out gocd.org sedaily and learn how you can get started. GoCD was built with the learnings of the ThoughtWorks engineering team, and they have talked in such detail about building the product in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily. ThoughtWorks was very early to the continuous delivery trend, and they know about continuous delivery as much as almost anybody in the industry. It's great to always see continued progress on GoCD with new features like Kubernetes integrations, so you know that you're investing in a continuous delivery tool that is built for the long term. You can check it out yourself at gocd.org slash sedaily. Wow.